Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Delighted to, to be with you and to... Uh, offer some reflections on the passage of the New Testament that's just been read to us. It's a very rich passage. There's far too much to cover in a mere hour and a half sermon. Uh, I will do it in considerably less than that. But I I want to reflect particularly on the person of Thomas. Uh, Thomas has a sort of rough ride, I think, in the history of the church. We're all familiar with the, the term doubting Thomas, which is something of a misnomer, I think. Thomas is not so much a doubter, I suspect, as someone who uh, perhaps rightly knows that eyewitness testimony can be wrong. Anybody who's ever done any work in history will know that eyewitness testimony can be profoundly limited. Same in the legal profession. I think uh, if we look at the portrayal of Thomas elsewhere in the Gospel of John, he appears less as a doubter and more as as a pessimist. For example, John chapter 11, to which we will be referring later on in this sermon, uh, the famous chapter where Jesus is called on by his friends to head over to Bethany and to uh, heal and then ultimately to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Bethany is in territory where it's risky uh, for Jesus to operate at that point. The forces of opposition are gathering in strength in that area. And yet Jesus decides to go to Bethany. Uh, to uh, deal with uh, his friend uh, and Thomas makes the comment let us go along with him that we may also die and that I think speaks very much of the the psychology of Thomas that he's a man who I think on the whole thinks things are getting worse and that the good can never happen and in this passage I think rather than we might say a skeptical attitude perhaps what we see here is Thomas's personality coming out in this particular context. He was missing from the first post-resurrection encounter with the disciples that this passage talks about that was included in the reading where Jesus appeals appears to his disciples. For some reason, Thomas uh, isn't there. And at some point, they obviously mentioned Thomas, the good news that the Lord was risen. And Thomas, being the, the doer, pessimistic type that he is, responds that, well, unless unless he can actually have an encounter with the physical Jesus, he won't believe the good news. And eight days later, and of course this is uh, counting inclusively, so it's on the Lord's Day again, the next Lord's Day after the first appearance of Jesus to his disciples, the disciples are once again uh, in this room and they're in, well, well, I suppose the term we're now familiar with, they're in lockdown. They're not in lockdown for fear of a disease, though. They're in lockdown for fear of the enemies of Jesus that they worry have gained in strength since his execution and may well be looking to sort of mop up the Jesus movement at this point. So the disciples are once again gathered in this locked room. And Thomas is with them this time. And the Lord appears to Thomas and shows him 
his wounds. It's interesting that the Lord is clearly aware of what's going on in this room, uh, even though he was not physically there at the uh, initial moment. Jesus appears, he shows Thomas his wounds. We're not told if Thomas uh, uh, requires putting his finger in them. That was certainly the sort of the bravado claim he made. The text doesn't tell us whether or not he did that. What the text does tell us, though, is that he's clearly cured of any doubts he might have about the veracity of the account given by the disciples. It's a fairly straightforward narrative then. I wonder suggest today that this narrative brings to the fore a number of key things that are still perhaps or definitely should be of use and help to us today. I want to reflect on what this narrative brings to the fore about the human condition. I want to look at how this narrative points to the exalted status of Jesus Christ with specific reference to the human condition. And I also want to suggest that it points us, it points us to the powerful place of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Scriptures in our current era. So we're going to look at the human condition, we're going to look at the exalted nature of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we're going to reflect on the power of the Spirit and the Holy Scriptures in this day and age. Thomas may well, to look at the first one, the human condition, Thomas may well be motivated by a concern for proof. I think in some ways he does great service to the church by demanding proof of the physicality of Christ's resurrection. He can only speculate about what his own motives might be, but that demand that Christ be physically present is not a bad demand. Thomas doesn't just want a holographic or a sort of spooky Jesus. Thomas wants a Jesus in physical continuity with the man that he knew as mentor and friend. Now, I doubt that Thomas has this floating around in his mind at the time he asked this, but he's pointing towards a truth here. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is important because forgiveness is really just half of the gospel. Maybe not even half of the gospel. Forgiveness would not address the most existentially urgent question we all ask. That's the question of death. Remember some years ago I was uh, uh, in Philadelphia, I was a part-time pastor at a a church in the suburbs and I would attend occasionally uh, uh, breakfasts for for, for pastors and priests in the local area and uh, got into a lovely conversation with an orthodox priest who was sort of pressing me on why Protestants emphasize the death of Jesus and not the resurrection or the ascension. And it sort of got me, got me thinking. Well, I have to say that I think he'd put his finger certainly on a lack in my own life and preaching at that point. There is a moral problem that the gospel deals with. The rebellion against God and bringing with it all of the guilt and the justice, etc., the judgment that we have to face. But there's a second problem, isn't there? There's that existential problem, the problem of death. Roger Scruton, the English philosopher, in his wonderful uh, book, The Uses of Pessimism, uh, only an English philosopher, I think, would write a book with that title. It's one of my my favorite uh, Scruton works. 
Now, Scruton argues in that work that death is necessary in order to make life meaningful. He argues that endless life would make every given moment of negligible value, a bit like sort of endlessly printing money. It ultimately leads to a, a devaluation of any given instance, and it makes a sort of logical sense. As I was reflecting on that argument, it makes a logical sense, but I couldn't make it make intuitive sense. Cicero, the Roman orator, declared that no man is so old that he does not think he can live for another year. Woody Allen's famous comment, I'm not afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. (laughs) Death is something that bites us more than sin, if we're honest. We all sin on a daily basis and we don't get too worried about it. But a moment or two of reflecting on death, that's scary. Partly it's scary, I think, because death is inconceivable. To imagine your own death is to imagine yourself as an observer of your own death, which by definition is not to imagine your own death. Our deaths are by definition something we cannot conceive, and yet we know that is where we are heading. And of course, the Bible presents these two problems, the problem of sin and the problem of death, as intimately related. Death is the wages of sin. Both need to be addressed in the gospel. And we know, particularly from the gospel of John, that death is a particularly terrible enemy. John chapter 11, Jesus weeps. Standing outside the tomb of his friend, Lazarus, confronted with the havoc that human sin has wreaked on the world, embodied, as it were, in the death of his friend, Jesus, God manifest in the flesh, weeps. Christ acknowledges the reality of death. He does not affirm it in any way as positively meaningful. Death for Christ, I think as it is for us intuitively, is the most powerful indication there is that things are not as they should be. There are other indications, aren't there? Illnesses, suffering. But death is the ultimate expression that the world is fallen from what it should be. You stand at the coffin of somebody you know and you look at their dead body, it's terrifying because they look just as they used to look and yet they're gone. And no power on earth is able to bring them back. I did an article last year for a magazine on, on, I was asked by the editor to write uh, an article on death, which I I did. And the editor came back to me and challenged me. And it's always appreciated editors. Editors make make writers look better than they should do, I think, a good editor. I've never been edited without improvement. But the editor challenged me. He said, if death is as universal as leaves falling from a tree in the fall... Why does death hurt? If death is natural, if everybody dies, why does death hurt? I think the answer in somewhat, of course, is death reduces those that are left behind. In John chapter 11, Lazarus was a friend of Christ. Christ had lost a friend. Jesus' delay, it happens in that narrative, had precipitated it. Jesus sort of wanted Lazarus to die in a way so that he could demonstrate his power. But faced with the loss of his friend... The humanity, the human Jesus, we might say, was reduced. 
He was sad for his friend's suffering. He was sad that his loved one's world was reduced by his death. Thomas, I think, here. It could be very hard on Thomas as a doubter, but surely he's first and foremost a friend in mourning. He's lost his friend and his mentor. He's reduced by that death. The future that he envisaged with Jesus was no longer possible as far as he knew. And that's why death hurts, isn't it? Because when we lose loved ones, we feel reduced. We know that it is not as it should be. We even have words that speak to this, don't we? The child becomes an orphan and they lose a parent, the father. Well, we actually, we don't have a word for parents who lose children. Often wondered if that's because it's just too painful a concept to coin a particular word for. The husband who loses his wife becomes a widower. The wife becomes a widow. The words of John Donne seem to apply. Each man's death diminishes me, for I am involved in mankind. Therefore, send not to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. Death is the great leveller. The final contradiction of all our attempts at self-creation. The ultimate proof that we are finite and limited. Isn't it interesting in our contemporary society at the moment that unlike the Victorian era where death was everywhere, you even have those creepy photos taken of of dead ones. uh, Very disturbing from a modern sort of sensibility. For us, death has been shoved to the margins, hasn't it? It's been sanitized. Turned into a comic book fiction by pop cultural representations. If you noticed how in soap operas and sitcoms, how quickly people recover from death. Uh, when my dad died, my mum told me it was seven years before she could sleep through the night. Seven years. Seven years. We have shunted death to margins because we fear it. Death has an inevitable, tragic dimension to it. And if the gospel is to be good news, if Jesus is the Messiah, then death, physical as well as spiritual, must be addressed. The good news is not just forgiveness of sins. It is resurrection in Christ. That is the demonstration that death does not have the last word. And therefore I would suggest that Thomas is demand here that he be able to touch Jesus' flesh Maybe that arose out of his own undue pessimism. But it's nonetheless pointing towards a vital truth. If the Jesus the disciples saw was not a physical flesh and blood Jesus who had come back from the dead, then it was all in vain. Death has not been broken. Death does have the last word. People are still in their sins. So the first thing then, I think, is that this points us to the human condition. It reminds us that above all, that which we face is the problem of death and the physicality of Christ's resurrection. That's not negotiable. It's not just a question of proving to Thomas that God is God. It's a question of demonstrating that the problem has really been dealt with. Notice Thomas's response. It's a wonderful response, isn't it? The second point. Again, I said we, we're not told in the text if uh, Thomas does touch the wounds. Uh, my suspicion is he probably didn't. He was probably so shocked by this appearance that touching the wounds would have been superfluous. Well, we're not told either way. What we are told is his response. My Lord and my God. 
my Lord and my God. Thomas immediately acknowledges the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ as he who is the God of Israel. The promise made to Abraham, the prophecies of the Old Testament, Ezekiel 34, I I will be the shepherd. All of these things are coming together in Thomas's mind as he acknowledges, acknowledges the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thomas, in other words, witnesses to Jesus Christ here as the very answer to death. Jesus was a miracle worker, for sure. But there are many miracle workers around, and he claimed to work miracles today. No doubt in the first century, there were many miracle workers around the Mediterranean at the time of Jesus. Of course, Jesus' miracles were not done simply for the purpose of the miracle. They were done to point beyond. Think of Mark chapter 2. The paralytic is lowered through the roof and Jesus declares that his sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders, they know immediately what's being said there. Jesus is claiming divinity. They start muttering among themselves. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, overhearing them, knowing what they're saying, responds in this way. Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Think of John chapter 11, that chapter, uh, amazing story of Jesus. Uh, first of all, as I noted earlier, you know, hearing that his friend is ill and then deliberately delaying going to help him so that his friend will die in order that he can perform a greater miracle and indeed make a greater declaration about himself. What does Jesus say? He says, I am the resurrection. In that chapter, he doesn't say, I resurrect. He points to himself and his own person and his identity as being the resurrection. It's powerful. And of course, I might say, poor old Lazarus. Lazarus is raised from the dead and immediately becomes the target of an assassination plot because Lazarus's very existence is then proof that Christ is the resurrection. John 12 verse 10 tells us this. The chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Jesus is the resurrection. Thomas's acknowledgement of Jesus at this point points to that. Points, of course, to the fact that Jesus Christ is the answer to evil. What is the ultimate manifestation of evil in this world? It's death, isn't it? Typically, when we all, and we all wrestle with this, maybe frequently, when we wrestle with the problem of evil, by and large, it comes down to, why did that innocent person die? Why all that suffering leading to those incalculable number of deaths of people who didn't deserve to be treated like that? Death is, in some ways, the problem of evil. 
Death is the ultimate enemy of us all. Death is something which only creatures experience. But only God can overcome. When Thomas acknowledges Jesus' identity here, he's pointing to him as the answer. He's pointing to him as the resurrection. Paul summarizes it beautifully, doesn't he? In 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Death is an enemy. Death is the enemy. Death is not part of the divine plan. And in Christ and his resurrection, God has demonstrated his sovereignty over it by its subversion and then its complete destruction. Christ not only takes flesh, he plunges into the deepest and furthest reaches of the human experience of the human condition, even into death itself. I know there's that clause in the Apostles' Creed that some people don't like to say, he descended into hell. Uh, I don't think it's as problematic as people think. I think the English translation misleads there somewhat. I think it's an important clause because it emphasizes Jesus died and stayed died for a while. Make sure that when he was resurrected, the job was fully done. In Christ, death is overcome. And Thomas, confronted with the physical continuity of the resurrected Jesus Christ, with the person he knew before, knows that the human condition has been addressed. Death no longer reigns. When the second thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus comes into his kingdom, not by escaping from his body and avoiding death, but by dying on the cross. Death is what carries Christ into his kingdom because he breaks it and destroys it for all time. And that brings me then to my third point. And this, I think, arises uh, reflecting on this passage, I think, in the context of the New Testament as a whole. It's sort of implicit, I think, in that last little bit that Jesus said. Jesus uh, says in verse 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? There's a kind of mild rebuke there, I think. You know, he's not really whacking Thomas with any uh, great strength there, but there's a mild rebuke in that question. Did you really have to see me to believe the story? But then Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. That text could be a discouragement, couldn't it? We might be tempted to envy Thomas. It might be a whole lot easier for Ethan to persuade you of the truth of the gospel each week if Jesus put in a physical appearance and those who were so inclined came up and put their fingers in the wounds. Counterintuitively, though, the Bible doesn't say that. Is Jesus here saying it's more blessed to believe even in the face of no evidence, a kind of leap of blind faith? Is that what Jesus is saying? Those who sort of believe irrationally are doing a whole lot better than Thomas. I'm not persuaded that's the case. I think the Bible presents a different, perhaps even a counterintuitive approach to firmness of belief. First of all, in the Gospel of John, remember why Jesus had to go away. John chapter 16, the final address before the, the, the terrible events of, of, the, uh, of the betrayal and then Good Friday. And Jesus is talking to his disciples. It's remarkable. I mean, it's that beautiful passage where he says, you know, long, no longer do I call you servants, I call you friends. You know, in the Old Testament, uh, Moses is the man who gets to speak with the Lord like a friend. 
And suddenly Jesus is sort of opening up that the friendship of God to a whole different class of people, we might say. And in the midst of that, of course, he's talking about his departure. And the disciples are hearing how this man who now calls them friends is about to die and go from them. And Jesus discerns that they're not feeling too good about this. He says, because I say I'm about to go away, your hearts are saddened. But then he adds this sort of weird twist. He said, but it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I go away, I will send the comforter to you. Theologically there, I think what Jesus is saying is this. My physical absence is going to translate into my universal presence. Geography is no longer going to count. The Old Testament geography was very important. The Ark of the Covenant was the center of Israelite cult activity. In the Gospels, geography is very important. The presence of Jesus is very important. That's why uh, he has to go to Bethany to raise Lazarus. The presence of the human Christ is going to be important. But then here towards the end of John, he, he sort of says, my humanity is going away and I'll send the, cover, uh, the, uh, the comforter to you. A comforter is going to make, if you like, Jesus present everywhere. Jesus is really present, we might say, because he's physically absent. Bear that in mind then, and as we reflect upon a statement in Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 16, following. Peter says this, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God, the, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter's talking there uh, about uh, the transfiguration. Peter's saying, we were there. We saw it with our eyes. We heard the voice. But then he goes on. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting passage because what Peter does there is he says, we were on the mountain. We saw the transfiguration. We heard the voice. But we have something more certain. We have the prophetic word. We saw it with our eyes. But if you like, more reliable than that is the prophetic word. Assurance is kind of not what you expect. Assurance is rooted, we might say, in God's speech. Words are very powerful every Sunday. Today, I'm not sure. I may call my mum tomorrow. The last year has been 40 minutes of COVID. Every time I call her, uh, she's in Britain, uh, all on her own. And, and it dominates her life, of course. Because, uh, uh, But preaching twice on a Sunday, I'm not sure I can do the 40-minute COVID conversation uh, today. But I call my mum every Sunday. And, and at the end of the conversation, I always say, I love you, mum. And if I mean her good books, she'll say she loves me too. 
And hearing those words makes all the difference. Makes all the difference. I don't need to be in my mum's physical presence, if you like, to be assured of her love for me. I just need to hear the words. Don't get me wrong, I'd rather be in my mum's physical presence. I'd rather be sitting in the living room, having a cup of tea and, and talking about things. But hearing the words are all I need to be assured of her love. Peter, I think, is pointing to the same, only more powerful. What is Jesus assuming when he says to Thomas, blessed are those who haven't seen me yet believed? I'm thinking he's saying, blessed are those who believe the words about me. And where do we hear these words? Well, I think we hear these words in the church. Promises to believers gathered together, isn't it? Where two or three are gathered together, there am I in the midst of them. The Spirit accompanies God's word in the church when the word is preached. When the word is set forth as it will be momentarily in the sacraments. Then Christ is powerfully present, isn't he? A reassuring presence. You come to church on a Sunday to, to hear God speak to you. Maybe rebuke you where you need to be rebuked. But above all, speak to you and tell you that he is risen. That's a wonderful, a wonderful thing. And here, I think Jesus points to that. So my only application in this is, let's commit to being under the sound of the word each week. For in doing so, we have perhaps unexpectedly a more powerful and blessed source of comfort than even Thomas had in this passage. Praise God for his holy word. Free at last, they took your life. They could not.